and welcome to the Forecast Fest. I'm Kate Baldwin here with my colleagues, John Avlon. Hola. And Harry Enton. Shalom on a dignified and solemn Yom Kippur. For the first time, Harry is appropriate. Thank you, Harry. (laughs) She said awkwardly. I I try to be appropriate at times, the times where I need to be appropriate. Only when you want to be written into the good book. That's correct. I need to atone for many of things. Now, for everyone not written in the good book, a big test for Democrats in the Deep South, a jungle primary in Louisiana this weekend. We're going to jump into the weeds there, but it's fun. Join us in the weeds and debate. It's a swamp. It's Louisiana. It's a swamp. Oh, I like it. Pop, it's home to Popeyes. <laughs> oh, here we go. And um, after that, then the country is embroiled in an impeachment battle, in case you didn't know. And we're going to take a look at what the past may actually teach us about what might be happening next and why Mitt Romney is one of the few Republicans speaking out. But first, for the forecast this week, something very special. The next CNN debate will be Tuesday, October 15th, live from Ohio. Twelve candidates will somehow cram together on that stage for one night, one night only. The podium positions are, again, based on polling, and that means Joe Biden will be front and center, flanked by his two closest rivals, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Um, And there's also going to be one new face on that stage. So, Hmm. Harry, where do the candidates stand as they head into the debate. So, uh, look, I think things have certainly tightened up nationally. I took an average of the polls since the impeachment inquiry began. And what the national polls generally indicate is that Joe Biden's at 28 percent. Elizabeth Warren is at 24 percent. Bernie Sanders is at 15 percent. Everyone else is below 10 percent. And obviously, look, Joe Biden has generally been in the high 20s, low 30s. So not much movement on that front. But the big number there is obviously Elizabeth Warren. At 24 percent, she has broken through the 20s in pretty much most of the polling. And that signifies to me that essentially we have co-front runners right now. And it's going to be very interesting to see whether or not the other candidates will go after Warren bigly on the stage, in part because, you know, if you look at the polling from past debates, what you see is that Warren came out in the top one or two positions, pretty much all the post-debate polling on who won the debate. Who is the most to gain and lose in this debate? We ask every debate, John. <laughs> um, I, look, I think that Biden, um, every debate we say Biden, it's going to be sort of do or die because he's in the front runner's position and he's been taking a lot of shots. I think it this time too. But I do because, um, look, the president is in the process of potentially getting impeached for attacking Biden, requesting the foreign powers investigate his chief political rival. Um, and it's because Biden is by all polling – his most formidable opponent. So if Biden uh, and, and, you know, there have been a lot of articles written about how the Biden response has been a little bit muddled. He hasn't known exactly how the right posture. Um, but this is an opportunity to really take center stage and say, look, the president of the United States is being impeached. He is attacking me because he's afraid of me. Let's be honest about this. It's a sign of his indecency. I'm not going to let him take down my family or the American family. But it's because, folks, that he knows I can beat him. And the polls show that some of my other friends on this stage can't. So it, that means that it's a golden opportunity and a field of landmines as well because – for Joe Biden and others on this issue. I, I think you're exactly right. You know, we've obviously seen Biden's lead sort of tighten against Warren. Uh, so there's that going on. I think, you know, the biggest question that we've seen so far this primary season is who is the most electable. And if you look at the polling, you know, as John was pointing out, there was a Wisconsin poll taken by Fox News that came out over the weekend that had him up nine more than his uh, over Donald Trump, which was more than any of his Democratic opponents in Wisconsin, in Wisconsin, the key state. Mm-hmm. So we're going to see if he's going to be able to point that out. But, Accident. I think not. <laughs> 
But, uh, you know, look, I, I think that Joe Biden's debate so far, if you look at the polling, um, have been received lukewarmly at best. Uh, you know, obviously, following the first debate, most people thought he lost that particular endeavor. Uh, since that time, the polls have been kinder to Biden in terms of the post-debate reaction with not too much movement that we saw in the polling numbers. But there's no doubt that there is this media narrative that has been building that Joe Biden has not been able to be up to snuff on the debate stage so far. And also, isn't this uh, sets up a very interesting dynamic on stage because you have seen every other candidate, every other Democratic candidate has come out and said, Donald Trump is absolutely wrong on this and this should absolute what he did on the call is an absolute no. What he said publicly is an absolute no um, since then. But mm-hmm. there is some suggestion that if they were president, they would not want their vice president, anyone in anyone's family to be on the boards of foreign companies. Yeah. And, and that is a very, very fair point that I can think you can make without actually attacking Biden or uh, his son, Hunter. You can when you're in the middle, when you're in an interview. I agree. But when you're on stage, I wonder if it presents one of those opportunities. See Julian Castro questioning Biden's Biden memory. Biden boomerang. It might hit somebody on the way back. Look, I, I think it's it's on how you do it, right? I mean, it, it, if you say, look, the president was one hundred percent wrong. Joe Biden's family did nothing wrong. The, pres- the vice president did nothing wrong. That said, we need to hold ourselves to a higher standard. We can't give. Uh, uh, our opponent's ammunition. And I think it's appropriate going forward that no member of any presidential family or vice presidential family should do work with foreign countries or foreign companies. Full stop. I think that's I think that's a fair way to draw a distinction. And frankly, whether Biden will take that pledge. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't even thought about that. Oh, yeah. Oh, note to those debate note hosts. Note to those debate That's a good, yes. that's a really good debate question, actually. Um, Tom Steyer will be joining the debate stage. Ah, yes. Um, thoughts? Look, Tom Steyer has shown that if you spent millions of dollars in the early states on advertisement, that you can, in fact, buy your way onto the debate stage. I take issue with the buy your way. People still have to say they support him. It's sure, still a sure, personal sure. choice. But the, but the fact is, is that how much, how many millions of dollars has he spent in those early states? And here's the amazing many. thing. He hasn't just qualified for the October debate stage. He has already qualified for the November debate stage, which a number of these candidates on the debate stage next week haven't even qualified for. So, look, uh, Tom Steyer is going to be very interesting to see. But my guess, if I were to take one sort of big question, is there's clearly this middle lane that Joe Biden has been able to capture, although perhaps his grip on it has been loosening. Can someone like Steyer, who's, if you believe the polling, been doing a little bit better with some of those older, more moderate voters, be able to present a plausible alternative? And I do think this actually raises one of the interesting subtexts of this debate, which is who's the Biden backup? If Biden does implode... Um, I can't with your alliteration. You know, I love it's it that so much. Thank you very much. Love it so much. Uh, that lane actually is a really significant, interesting thing, right? If folks say, look, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, the base may love them, but they're too liberal to win. If Biden can't actually get across the finish line, who's the plausible central left nominee? And who's in, Who you know, is that Peter Buttigieg? I think it's increasingly going to be his kind of an argument. Maybe it's a Cory Booker or Kamala Harris argument, but you could see Tom Steyer making that play. Wow. Tom Steyer likes being put into the same category. I know. And, and to be fair, others. he doesn't really deserve to be in that category. Oh, my gosh. You guys, you're on the bottom way on the stage. Meanie. All right. Well, let's see how he does on the debate stage first. Okay. So 
Ohio is where everyone will be next week. Let us move to Louisiana, though, now. It's almost Election Day there. The only Democratic governor in the Deep South is facing a primary this weekend. Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards. And it is a jungle primary, meaning, well, first, Terry, why don't you explain? So essentially— Or, oh, wait, do you want to explain? Who wants to explain? I just want to say jungle primary in the Big Easy is a great name for a band or bar. Or both. Or both. I like it. Now back to politics, though. I don't know anything about drinking except for cream sodas. Ew. Um, Why does that sound gross when you say it? Because of the way he says everything. Uh, Oh, that's not fair. Hey. Hey. (laughs) Again, creepy. Creepy. (laughs) Look, here's what a jungle primary is, okay? Creepy. Let Jimmy Durante explain. (laughs) Here's the deal. The deal is pretty simple. All the candidates, regardless of their party affiliation, will run in a primary that will be coming up this Saturday. If none of the candidates reach 50 percent, then the two top candidates will face off in a runoff on November 16th. If, however, one candidate gets 50 percent plus one, they win outright. And that has been the general rule in Louisiana gubernatorial elections pretty much as far back as I can remember. And so it makes for a very interesting split because what you essentially have in Louisiana is you have the Democratic governor, John Bell Edwards. He is basically the only one who could potentially get up to 50 percent plus one. But then there are two Republicans, Ralph Abraham, who's a representative, and Eddie Rispone, who's a businessman who've been trading back and forth trying to figure out who is going to get second place in order to face off potentially against Bell Edwards in the runoff. But here's the whole thing. That has kept them from really in a true way going after Bell Edwards. And in fact, Donald Trump was not endorsing either one of the candidates. He's basically like, look, just go out and vote for one of these Republicans because we got to stop Bell Edwards, which doesn't really sound like that great of an attack coming from the president who is known for his alliteration. Mm. First of all, jungle primaries are awesome um, because it actually is more little D Democratic. It opens the franchise. Yeah, you, like if you were anti-jungle primary, I'd like that's That'd like antithetical to you. Correct, Mundo. And he's very popular. He's a red state Democrat. So, you know, if you're a professional progressive from Berkeley or Brooklyn, you may disapprove of positions on guns or abortion. But you know what? That's one of the things that's made him very popular with Republicans. It's not a slam dunk. But as we saw in 2018, a lot of southern suburbs have been trending Democratic in reaction to the president. So, uh, Bell Edwards is, and it looks to be in a pretty good uh, shot to, to win re-election. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be whether he hits that critical fifty threshold. Well, right, right. So essentially, what you have, Mr. Avalon, is that on. th- here's one poll that came out from Mason Dixon. Other polls look generally like it, which has Edwards in this particular poll at forty five percent, Rispone at twenty two percent, Abraham at seventeen percent, a few other candidates basically picking up a, a single digits, and then the undecided is ten percent. If you allocate those undecideds proportionally, you get Edwards to 45 percent, excuse me, to 50 percent of the vote. And that, in fact, look, look, she's there's so much numbers. Choose me, choose me, choose me, choose me. Go on. Um, That gets you to 50 percent of the vote. So there's a real question. But here's the big sort of nugget as far as I'm concerned is Mason Dixon also placed Edwards against Rispone and Abraham in a potential runoff. And in both of those, Edwards is up ahead by nine points or more and breaking the 50 percent barrier. So you see the undecided number. Could that possibly be why the president is going there the day before the election? I would say that's exactly why the president would be going there is because he wants to ensure his track record is mixed on this. Right. He does this Mm -hmm. all. He's done this so many times the day before. Get out. 
You have to go vote for a Republican, insert name here. Uh, and if that Republican wins, I'm a genius and I help pull him over the line. If that Republican ends up losing, he ran a faulty campaign and didn't run. He or <laughs> she right. didn't run close enough. Even to I me. couldn't help them. <laughs> right. uh, it wasn't my fault. I, you know, it was I, a one our man. I, I wonder if, 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 you know, it's a legit question whether undecided voters are going to be like, you know, that Donald Trump guy, I haven't been given much thought to him. I haven't heard of him. Like but it. Uh, all of a sudden, I think I'm really going to vote for the guy he barked at me to do something for. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. 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 Here's how the New York Times describes Edwards. I want to read this for you guys. It was Mr. Edwards, an anti-abortion West Point graduate who set a template for winning a red state personality contest with his 2015 race against Senator David Vitter, who was burdened with the prostitution scandal. Sorry, can you read that last part again? Yeah, David Vitter, who was burdened, burdened with, the, with prostitution the prostitution scandal. Oh, well, okay. Mr. Edwards also constantly reminds voters that he helped close a $2 billion deficit he inherited from his Republican predecessor, Bobby Jindal, who had signed a no-tax pledge. This is why I read this. This also reads to me the roadmap for winning red states for Democrats in 2020. Yep. 100 percent. And and ooh, have we been talking about the absence of governors from red and purple states on the Democratic stage? Exactly. Yeah. No, exactly. it's a problem, people. And again, Steve Bullock not making the debate stage. And should be there. And, and I'll point out that there was a poll that was just recently conducted from Montana, which actually showed him beating uh, Trump in the state of Montana. So, you know what? Maybe there should be I'm something saying, said Democrats, for state like, Democrats. Just like reality check. You need governors from non-blue states, but just any governors or people who've been elected in non-blue states to have a real like genuine shot at not just winning an election, but reuniting the nation. So Please. first and foremost, let's see what happens with John Bell Edwards. Please. Um, okay. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, it's the word on everyone's lips in Washington right now. Impeachment. What the past can teach everyone about the present impeachment battle at hand and what's the role Mitt Romney is going to play in all this. That's up next. We're back. Trivia time. I know you love this time. Who was the first president to face impeachment? Not who you're going to say. It actually was John Tyler. 1842, following the death of President William Henry Harrison, only a month into his term, Tyler was the vice president. When he insisted that due to Harrison's death that he should be president, the House was like, well, maybe not. And they tried to impeach him, but he never was. The first president to actually be impeached by the House, John Andrew Johnson, Abraham Lincoln's VP. By the way, John Tyler's nickname? What? His accidency. Also, fun fact, one of John Tyler's grandchildren is still alive. I thought it was two. Did one die? Oh. At least one of sad. John Tyler's <laughs> grandchildren <laughs> is still alive. For the record, was not supposed to be the focus today, but I really enjoy the John Tyler. Yeah, totally. Um, where we're, Okay. Here's the point of this whole thing, friends. <laughs> This isn't the first time a sitting president has faced impeachment, but it is extremely rare and it is extremely serious. What can the past teach us? Mm. First, Harry, by the numbers, what do you see? I think there are a few things that we sort of see. And what I'm interested in is this trend line that we've generally been seeing, at least on supporting the impeachment inquiry. So if you look at a Monmouth poll that was taken back in August, only 41 percent said it was a good idea or approved of the general idea of it versus 51 percent who said it was a bad idea or disapproved of the idea of it, generally speaking. Now, take a look at the average of polls about the impeachment inquiry taken since it began. If you look... 
about 52% approve of it versus 43% disapprove of the impeachment inquiry. And if you look at the three polls that were taken since October began, essentially what you get is 55% approve of the impeachment inquiry versus 41% who disapprove of it. So we've seen this clear rise, about a 15-point rise of those who approve of the impeachment inquiry. And even among Republicans, what we saw was just 8% said it was a good idea back in August, and now 17% uh, since the inquiry began, approve of it among Republicans. So we're seeing movement across the board. Yeah, and that's a big deal. I mean, you know, Republicans, uh, it, it basically doubling um, in, in a few months. Independents also ticking up. Mm-hmm. These The trend is not the president's friend here. And while I think elements of his base will actually solidify behind him in the face of this, um, you are seeing uh, support for inquiry um, get to a place that even Nixon wasn't at at this time. Okay, so let's let's talk about the Nixon example for a second. When you're looking at least how impeachment worked for Nixon and how it played out, he fought impeachment for two years. Then August of 1974 comes about, support starts cratering among Republicans, and Republican leaders go to the White House and they tell him, essentially, the votes are against you. You're facing near certain impeachment. And conviction in the Senate. Ex- right, exactly. And so Nixon resigns the next day. The, that was then. The big difference I see, and I know I've mentioned this to you guys before, is that at that time what existed in the Congress was conservative Democrats and moderate Republicans. Right. And the gulf between the parties now is so much more vast of how to make up – like they have so much more ground to make up to come together around something like as, as serious as this. So this to me is really interesting, right? If you were to take a look – at the Judiciary Committee um, back in 73-74 that was basically you know, running the impeachment inquiry and they held a vote on three different articles of impeachment and seven Republicans voted for at least one of those articles of impeachment on the Judiciary Committee, 10 voted against it. But take a look at those seven, right? What you see among those seven is that their median ideology, according to DW Nominate, which essentially looks at roll call votes, their median ideology is to the left of the leftist most Republican that is currently serving in the House of Representatives, which is nutter butter. That is essential, (laughs) which essentially means that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party has obviously moved away from the center, but we're talking specifically about Republicans. Republicans have moved so far away from the center that basically the Republicans who were voting for impeachment on that Judiciary Committee back in 1974, very few of them, and in fact, the media member doesn't even exist in the Republican caucus anymore. So you're going to have a much sort of harder hill to climb, a taller hill to climb in order to get Republicans on board impeachment. And even back in 74, where I think we obviously look back and say, oh, the case was so obvious, still a majority of Republicans on that Judiciary Committee voted against impeaching Richard Nixon. Right. And and that's the thing that is often lost in the present conversation looking back. It seemed, oh, so obvious that Richard Nixon was going to be impeached. That's not the case. As I said, two years he fought impeachment. We've been involved in this for... I mean, from the Ukraine thing, it's been two weeks. Yeah, and obviously it builds on 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 the Russia investigation. Right. Um, but but you know, I, I think obviously as you look at the hurdle of of, of a Senate conviction, almost certainly not going to happen. Polarization is a driving factor. Um, and also, I think Republicans feeling like, you know what, you, you double down, you play to the base. That's the key to politics today because you're never going to lose a general election. You wouldn't lose a primary, if anything, and you can't offend the president. Um, but, it, you know, the other parallel you're going to you should be hearing a lot about is Nixon. The second article of Nixon impeachment was abuse of power. The third was contempt of Congress and willful evasion of taxes. The first so was the, 
obstruction, obstruction, right? obstruction. obstruction. So you know, you you could very well see articles for obstruction in the primary charge being abuse of power, and if they continue to try to stonewall Congress and ignore subpoenas and requests for information, uh, contempt of Congress. Do you see those as direct? I mean, they're already definitely building uh, the obstruction case right now. I mean, you hear that from Democrats mm-hmm. already, that if you do not comply, that will be obstruction of Congress. Well, Robert Mueller's Obstruct report had Russia. 10 credible cases of obstruction. Some folks thought was a uh, a roadmap, right. but it just the, the total, total tenor didn't get there. Here's the number that I think I think matters. At the end of the day, no matter what any poll number says, it's the national poll number. The number that matters to Republicans is their primary poll numbers. And the only question that anyone out there that is listening to us needs to ask whenever anything new pops up is, will this move 20 Republicans in the Senate to the other side? And the answer is no. Probably not. No, I, I've learned my lesson of making too many declarative statements except for my hatred of the New York Yankees. Oh, God, please. Stink. Get that is a whole other episode. But, also, you're wrong and, and you're from the Bronx and you should I know lose evil, your, you should I know lose your evil, residency. I know evil when I see it. I mean, you're so dramatic. Look, here's, here's the deal, right? 15 percent back in March of 1974 among Republicans there and about is supported impeaching and removing the president. When you jump forward to late July and you look at the Harris poll, about 40 percent of Republicans supported that uh, the basic findings of the impeachment inquiry to essentially impeach the president of the United States. So there is potential for movement. And if you look at that, mm-hmm. March of 74 to late July of 74, not that long of a time. Yep. Mm-hmm. Not that long of a time. And yes, I do agree there's a lot more polarization there. I don't think we'll necessarily see a 25-point jump in support for, say, impeaching the president. But I will say that I wouldn't necessarily be like, no, I'd essentially put it – it's one of those tail events – um, statistically speaking, and tail events are often difficult to forecast of what is the real shot. Is it one in 100? Is it one in 20? Is it one in 200? Who really knows? Well, here, here's just a basic probability question. What are the odds of more information coming out and it being better for the president? Well, you know. On any front. Taxes. Silence says, uh, says, any, says <laughs> yes, everything here. Conversations with Good Putin. point. Good. Okay. So with that, this brings us to one of the few Republicans who is actually speaking out against the president. Mm-hmm. 2012 Republican presidential nominee turned Republican senator from Utah, Mitt Romney. Last week after President Trump stood on the White House lawn and called on Ukraine and China to investigate a political rival in Joe Biden, Romney went on Twitter and said that the president's remarks were wrong and appalling. And Trump unleashed on on him calling Romney a pompous ass and saying, I don't know why I feel like I need a British accent for that. And yeah. saying, How this, you? and saying the senator from Utah should be impeached. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Saying the senator from Utah should be impeached, which of course we know isn't a thing. Um, to say the least. So, <laughs> Harry, you took a look at both Romney and Trump and where they are in the polling. And does that tell you why Romney is one of the few people who yeah, absolutely. can speak out yeah, or feels he can? It absolutely tells you why. And I think it perhaps provides some sort of roadmap going forward for other Republicans. Look, the fact is that there are a number of reasons why Romney is able to speak out. Number one, uh, Utah is one of the worst. The Republicans in Utah, like Donald Trump, pretty much the least of any Republican elector in the nation. Only 74 percent approve of the job that he is doing as president of the United States, according to the 2018 CCES data set. 74 percent is pretty high, but when you consider that 92 percent of Republicans nationwide in that same um, particular survey approved of the job Donald Trump was doing as president, you see about a 20-point gap. 
But it's not just about, you know, Donald Trump being less popular there. It's also the fact that Mitt Romney was quite popular there. Uh, Mitt Romney, if you were to look essentially at the Fox News AP voter analysis, you'd essentially see that Romney had a favorable rating among Republicans in Utah of about 90 percent. So he was about 15 points more popular than the president of the United States in the great state of Utah. And indeed, when you were to match up Romney versus Trump in a potential 2020 primary, which Romney says he's not going to run in, uh, Romney was leading Trump by greater than 15 percentage points. Is there really a question hey about here? I mean, is this – you really are leaving open this possibility? I never close the door on anyone running. <laughs> there, there, there have been reports that there have been calls to donors um, about this, that he may be, be resisting. Uh, he obviously would be the first truly credible candidate to challenge, um, though three are in the race currently. Uh, and his former campaign manager, Stuart Stevens, is running Bill Weld's campaign. Um, that said, I think you know Romney deserves a great deal of credit for standing up, even if he's in the strongest political position to do so, um, because frankly, the, the silence has been deafening. But but the data informs everything, yeah. and I, I think the polling is so it's I think enlightening and also depressing because Romney standing up. I'm just I'm gonna I'm making an argument here. Romney standing up has less to do with this is where I stand and my where my moral center is. It has more to do with I can stand up and say this because the polls allow me to. Just as other Republicans who are defending the president are staying silent, it has nothing says little about their moral center and says more about I'm afraid of losing my primary. It's so sad. It's lame. I will say this. Good word. The. Republican electorate in Utah knew what they were getting with Mitt Romney. I should point out that Trump endorsed Mitt Romney going into 2018, but the fact was that he didn't need that endorsement, probably win the primary anyway, and that was not the reason why he won. And so I think, though, it's instructive in the sense that right now, you know, Donald Trump among Republicans nationwide in most of the polling has been sporting about a 90 percent approval rating, right? If that number starts creeping into the 70s, on a regular basis, I have always said that the the, the line to watch is 75 percent. 75 percent to me is the key line. That was about where George W. George H. W. Bush's approval rating was among Republicans heading into the 1992 Republican primary season in which, yes, he did win all the primaries and caucuses, but he faced a real challenge from Pat Buchanan. And if you then drop into the 60s, that's the same line where Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter were back in 76 and 80. Um, uh, respectively, in terms of then receiving real primary challenges. So the real question is, can you, in fact, see Donald Trump's approval rating among Republicans drop into the 70s like it is in Utah? And if you do see that, then I would really expect much more of a wave of Republicans. So, out. look, I appreciate all, all the analysis that you've done, but I, let me just drop I some older all, math. But I'm but going I, to I bill like, you right now. I, like your pa- I appreciate your passion, man. Um, <laughs> here, here's some older math. One man with courage makes a majority. And in politics, it matters. And one of the things people should be taking from Donald Trump isn't the power of people being a bully or threatening or th- ruling through fear, but the fact that he insisted on speaking his own truth loudly. And that certain trumpet drew a lot of supporters to to him. And and I think if you had more senators acting like leaders rather than followers, it would increase trust in the system and maybe change the dynamic right now. Just for a quick addition, I also think, to use John's word, it is also lame how Democrats had operated for a long time as well because they were operating on the basis of polls as well. Yes. Like they were running away from the word impeachment inquiry for weeks and weeks and weeks because it wasn't it wasn't where the polling was. So I'm an equal opportunity lamer right now. You're all lame. You're all 
you're terrible. Look, um, I think, though, no, that, that's a good point, Kate, which is that essentially, you know, back in August, the support for an inquiry was, in fact, a minority. And as soon as the Democrats came out in favor of it, that number's flipped around. People do follow their leaders. Um, and I will point out that, you know, yes, you can have certain politicians who can help shape public opinion in some sense. But I don't want to get too Green Lantern here with the idea that, you know, one man speaking out can change everything. Um, and going more Andrew Jackson than Green Lantern, but whatever, man. But think of this. Rem- you remember when Paul Ryan essentially said, I'm not going to I'm, I'm not sure I want to endorse Donald Trump for president of the United States. Remember when he essentially yeah. wrapped up the Republican nomination back in 2016 after Indiana? And what happened? You saw Ryan's numbers dip while Donald Trump's numbers didn't really go anywhere. So I think that we have to be cautious in the idea that we can necessarily expect our leaders to just come in there, charge in, show some bravery, and then everything will be magical together as the American president played by Michael Douglas, comes on stage and then is able to reunite with Annette Benning in the magical flower I'm, I'm an, shop. I'm an Aaron Sorkin kind of guy, man. No. Okay. This, <laughs> it's on. It is on now. And with that, that's going to be our next pod episode awesome. for sure. And that does it for us today. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a rating, a review, a comment. It really does help new listeners find the show. In the meantime, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Kate Baldwin. I'm at John Avalon. And I'm at Forecaster Enten. E-N-T-E-N. You know, down in makeup, they thought my name was spelled E-N-T-I-N. That must have been awkward for Oh, that's so hard considering my name is spelled completely differently than it's actually pronounced. We'll get it. We'll get into our we'll get into our soft stories later. I don't know what you're doing. Anyway. Special thanks to our team behind the scenes, Amy Eason, Lauren Moore, Raj Makija, and David Toledo like Toledo, Ohio. We'll see you right back here next time on the Forecast Fest. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.